It's a new day, new series, right? I don't know that I have felt such an overwhelming sense of insufficiency. And I'm not saying that in any lighthearted way. I'm serious as I approach this Gospel of Matthew. Man, oh man. We are about to embark on some some stuff. So, when we talk about starting the book of Matthew, we have to first and foremost evaluate what kind of literature are we looking at. And basically, the book of Matthew is like a biography. So let me ask you this question. Who would you want to write your biography? Huh? Imagine the different perspectives of different people who could write your biography. Like, say Asa wrote my biography. I bet it would be really good. I think you may surprise you. It may not be very short. It may be. <clears throat> but he would be talking from his perspective and probably talking to people that he knew. Dad was fun sometimes. Dad yelled a lot. Dad liked to sleep. Dad, yeah, yeah. I had to tell him how to get home one time. So from his perspective and to his particular audience, he would tell my story a certain way. Hopefully, say somebody that I worked with would write a different story. Hopefully. <laughs> Jason liked to sleep. No, but that's not what he would say. <laughs> If my wife were to write my biography, yeah, well, you know, it would be accurate because she knows. What would you want someone to say about you in your biography? Yeah. How would you like them to tell your story? What would you want your life to be about? What we're entering into in this study in the book of Matthew is one person's telling of the life of Jesus, the God-man. Matthew is almost, literally almost universally accepted as the author of this book, although he never mentions himself as the author. All of the early church fathers knew that this document was written by Matthew. So there's not much question about that. Of course, there's always somebody, yeah, but it could have been. Yeah, but we're, we're very sure as per the early church fathers who had access to the original documents, that this book that we're about to read was written by Matthew, who we'll meet in chapter 9, I think. Um, But his is one of four accounts that is in our New Testament of the life of Jesus, and the other three being told by Mark, Luke, and John. Now, we call these accounts Gospels because the life of Jesus is good news for those who hear it. But let's be clear, there's only one gospel. Okay, We call them the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to John. They're not four different stories. Four different people telling the same story from a different perspective. Mark and Matthew had a lot of the same material. Mark was written first, so they, they say that Matthew probably used a lot of Mark's material, but he added some stuff, some support stuff that wasn't in Mark. Luke got his information primarily from Paul. 
Mark got most of his information from Peter, and then, of course, John was an apostle. Matthew also was an apostle. So he had direct contact with Jesus for three and a half years, and he's telling his story, telling Jesus' story, the gospel according to Matthew from his perspective. So words matter. This is not one of the gospels. This is the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew's words matter because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. These are not Matthew's words alone. God worked in and through Matthew to tell the story of Jesus in a particular way. And the peculiarity of it comes in that Matthew is directing his words to speak to his Jewish brothers and sisters primarily. Matthew was Jewish. And he writes his gospel to a Jewish audience particularly. Matthew wants to communicate to the Jews one main message, and this will be the main message of Matthew. Okay, Jesus Christ, who is the main subject of this book, he wants to commun- Matthew wants to communicate that Jesus Christ is the promised king of the Jewish people. You're going to see the word king and the word kingdom over and over and over again in this book. <clears throat> the king of Israel, who had been promised since the time of David, remember that? the Davidic covenant that we talked about in our Old Testament overview. Matthew wants to communicate that Jesus is the promised king who was promised to David nearly a thousand years earlier. That was one of the covenants that God had established with His people. The other covenant that we want to highlight and we'll see today is that God had made a covenant with a man named Abraham. Right? And God told Abraham that Abraham would be the father of a great nation. And that, he would be a, that that nation would be a blessing to the whole earth. And then later, when the nation of Israel was nearing her peak, God told David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne of God's people forever. Forever. That's going to take somebody special, right? And the Jews, from the time that that covenant was given to David, they were expecting this king from that time on. Some probably wondered if it was David himself. And then when Solomon came in to reign, they thought maybe this is him. Well, it wasn't, right? Because just two generations after David, the nation of Israel split in two, with David's descendants ruling over two and a half out of twelve tribes. And we know from what we looked at a few weeks ago, that later the nation of Israel was completely obliterated and its inhabitants were taken into exile, living in a land that was not their own, being ruled by kings that weren't Jewish at all, much less of the line of David. Even when Cyrus of Persia issued the decree for the Jews who wanted to return to their land, there was no king in Israel at that time when the exiles returned. But instead, the Israelites were slaves of foreign rulers. And despite a brief time of self-rule during the Maccabean Revolt and Rule, which we looked at in our intertestamental period, there would never be a king again in Israel at all. Not a Jewish king. Not somebody from the line of David. And here at the beginning of the book of Matthew, Israel is longing for the Messiah. The rightful king. The forever king. To come and take his throne and free them from the Roman oppression that they're in the midst of. So, what in the world is Matthew saying by saying that Jesus is God's eternal king of Israel? Well, that's part of what we'll see as we move through this great book. And we'll see it through a multitude of Old Testament references. There's over 60 Old Testament references in the book of Matthew. So, 
it serves as a really good bridge, we'll talk about that in a second, between the two Testaments, Matthew does, because there's a lot of Old Testament references. Remember, it says this, and this is to fulfill this. We'll also see this journey through five major discourses, over a, which cover a wide range of topics. I read an article this week that absolutely positively blew my hair off. That's what happened, okay? This article was one of the finest pieces of literature I've ever... It was short by a guy named Brian Phillips. I'll post it on the church website. Um, and he tells in this article how these five discourses that I mentioned um, set the outline for the book. And he says that they mirror the path of the whole Old Testament, which Jesus is the literal fulfillment of. I, I was going to try to put some of that article in here. It's just too good. It's just too good for me to piecemeal it. I want you to read it. It's, it's phenomenal. Uh, so I'll post that. And he talks about the five discourses and how the life of Jesus walks through the Old Testament and literally fulfills it to the letter. Fantastic. So this is an amazing journey that we're about to take. We're going to look Jesus in the face and see Him in His full glory. Veiled in flesh, yes, but surely the King of all kings. So let's jump in. If you would stand... We're going to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 this morning. We stand out of reverence for the God of the Word and the Word of God that we believe was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit as Matthew put his pen to paper. So, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. <clears throat> and after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matthan, <clears throat> and Matthan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. No, I'm missing. Did I have 60? Yeah, I'm sorry. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. God, you know how to write a book. And we thank you that you have not left us as orphans to try to figure this out on our own. You have given us your Holy Spirit so that we might understand the words that you have spoken and written. So we lean on you this morning, God. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us and instruct us if we know you. If we don't know you, we pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us and draw us to you by the story of the person of Jesus. Have your way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You may be seated. So we got out of Ezra and Nehemiah, and y'all thought y'all were done with genealogies, right? Yeah, how about that? So Matthew starts his gospel, his account of the gospel, with a genealogy, with a bunch of names. Are you kidding me? I thought we left all that behind. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So first off, beginning here, the beginning here which says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is referring to the first 17 verses that we just read, okay? The book of Matthew is not the genealogy of Jesus Christ, okay? So this book, and remember I said you're going to see a lot of Old Testament references. You're going to also see a lot of Old Testament similarities as we move through Matthew, like you do here. Okay. In the Old Testament, there's over 50 genealogies. Over 50 in 39 books. Okay. Well, if you look at the wording of this here, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, if we look at Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. Now, do you see the similarities here? This is the book of the generations of Adam, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Okay, Note here that this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Just to be clear, in case you don't know, and I'm not saying this to be silly, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay, Because we say it like it is. Or like it's a, a middle name, Jesus Christ. You know, Bobby Lee. You know, this is not... Christ is not... His name, it's a title. So this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, is a better way to say that. Okay? Christ is a title, and it's translated from the Hebrew word that means anointed. The word literally means anointed. Mashiach is the Hebrew word, and it means anointed. Now from anointed, it came to reference the anointed one. The one that God would send to rule over His people and bring His plan to fulfillment. The promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah. And Messiah being translated from Mashiach. Okay, So it's Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the anointed one. The genealogy of Jesus the anointed one. The Messiah. This is the one, capital O, one, who would come and deliver God's people and rule over them for eternity. This is the promised king that David was promised that would rule over his house forever. His title is Christ, the Anointed One. And this Anointed One was the hope of the Jews. They were looking for this promised one, remember? We saw at the end of our intertestamental period study a couple weeks ago that these Jews who are now under Roman rule at the time that Matthew's writing, at the time that Jesus would come on the scene, they're under Roman rule and they were looking for the one like a son of man that Daniel had prophesied about who would come and establish God's eternal kingdom on earth. And if they were keen and knew their prophecy, which a lot of them did, they knew that Rome was the fourth of four kingdoms that Daniel had been shown. And after that fourth kingdom, this stone uncut by human hands came out and crushed the kingdom and it became a mountain and reigned and ruled forever. So they're counting their kingdoms. Okay, we've been through Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. God's going to send His Messiah now. 
And He's going to set up His rule on earth like He promised He would. So they're hungry. They're thirsty. They're anticipating this Messiah coming now. We sang Hosanna this morning, right? Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Come now. That's what Hosanna was saying. Come now, Lord. Come now, King. So the Messiah was coming soon, right? They'd be freed from Roman oppression by God's promised one, right? Matthew says yes. And this promised, anointed Messiah is Jesus, the Christ. Also, Matthew, in dealing with a primarily Jewish audience, looking to convince them that Jesus is their forever King, does what Jews do. He starts showing his root, his family tree. And there were two major requirements. There's a lot of requirements, but there's two major requirements for someone to be the king of Israel. First, they had to be an Israelite, which means they had to be a descendant of Abraham. And secondly, they had to be of David's line. So what do we see in verse 1 right off the bat? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So check that off the list, right? He meets those requirements. Both major requirements met. But there's a lot more meat on this bone. So, let's just read the rest of the passage. We're going to read 2 through 16 now. We're going to read all those names again. Are you ready? But pay attention. There will be a test. Though it will not be a test. But pay attention anyway. You ready? Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah. Now hold on just a second, let me stop there for a second. This stops the kingly line, okay? This is the last king when it says the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon, to Babylon. So from, let me go back here, David, then you got Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asaph. These folks were all kings. And we didn't really touch on that in our Old Testament survey. I just put their names up there. But this is the kingly line. And by the time you get to Jeconiah, he was the last king and he was actually set up by the Babylonian emperor uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He was kind of a puppet. And then the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, who was not a king. Okay, that's, It's just important to note that. Jeconiah was the last king. And Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matham, and Matham the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, don't worry, we're not going to explain every name. Okay, We're not going to do that. Actually, as far as it goes, there's some names here we know nothing about anyway. But let's look at the progression here. So I think if you know anything about the Bible, you're pretty familiar with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Okay. God had told Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation and that all the nations will be blessed through his seed and that he would inherit the land and it would be his as a perpetual statute 
Forever. God's real big on the word forever. Now it's interesting to look at the prophecies and blessings given about Judah by Jacob, who was the next name after Jacob. Let's go back there. I'm not going back far enough. Ram. That's a great name about Ram. So you got Isaac, Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. We won't take time to look at those prophecies about Judah, but give it a look if you get into it this week, if you want to get into it. Now, the story of Judah, I want to talk about that for a second. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Well, that's pretty innocuous, right? But if you know this story, it's pretty pathetic. I mean, it's really kind of yucky. Judah had a son named Ur. So they're like, what's his name going to be? He's like, Ur. Okay, we got it. And they wrote it on the birth certificate. E-R. Judah's son was named Ur. And Ur's mom, Judah's wife, was a Canaanite woman. Well, you know, really that wasn't good. She kept it in the family line. But he marries outside of the family. A Canaanite woman, they have a son named Ur. Well, Judah got Ur a wife named Tamar. Wait a second. I thought Judah and Tamar had kids. Well, stay with me, okay? He got a wife for Ur named Tamar. Ur was wicked, and it says that God took his life. So Judah told his other son, Onan, O-N-A-N, to go into Tamar and raise up offspring for his brother. Because that's what you did. If your brother died, you married his wife and you brought up offspring for your brother. Well, Onan didn't like that because he knew that the offspring wouldn't be his. It would technically be his brother's. So he did things to keep them from having kids. We won't talk about that this morning. Again, you can read it for yourself. God was not happy with Onan either, so he killed Onan. So Tamar's had two husbands, two sons of Judah, Ur and Onan, and they're both dead. So, you can read it. It's Genesis 38, by the way. So Judah told Tamar to mourn and wait for his younger son, Shelah, to grow up so that he could be given to her as a husband and she could be his wife, the third kid in the progression. But Judah was afraid that Shelah would be killed too, so when he was old enough, he didn't arrange for Shelah to marry Tamar. He kind of just moved on. Tamar realized what happened, and when Judah was coming to her town one time, she disguised herself as a prostitute. The world's oldest profession, right? Judah buys some time with her, not knowing it was her. And again, fill in the blanks. And he says he'll send a young goat from the flock to pay for the time that he had with her. He asks her what he should give her in pledge to make sure that she gets paid. He's like, I want, I want you to know that you're going to get paid. What would you like me to give you to make sure that well, I'll come get these things when I send the goat that pays for our time together? Well, she asks that he would give her his signet ring, his cord, and his staff, which is basically his ID pieces. Okay, This is how they identified themselves. So he says, fine, and he leaves that stuff with her. Now this is his daughter-in-law. He don't know this. So he goes home, and he sends payment back. He sends the goat back, but his friend that he sends the goat back can't find the prostitute that he didn't know was Tamar. So a little later, Judah hears that Tamar is pregnant by immorality. And Judah says that she should be killed. And she says, okay, I'm pregnant by the man who gave me these. And what do you think she presents? The signet ring, the seal, and the staff. And Judah's like, oopsie. 
Maybe, you sh- maybe I shouldn't kill you. So he takes her as he is. He didn't lay with her anymore. But when she's delivering her pregnancy, she has twins, who we see here in Matthew as Perez and Zerah. So the line that traces through Perez gets to a guy named Boaz. We're going forward here. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. So we know Boaz from the book of Ruth, which we'll talk about in a second. But who is Boaz's parents? Salmon and a woman named Rahab. Anybody familiar with Rahab? She was the prostitute. That word keeps coming up. Who the spies met in spying out the promised land in the book of Joshua. She was from Jericho and was a prostitute. And she, So God destroys Jericho, but they save Rahab because she hid the spies. She's the only, her and her family are the only ones who make it out of Jericho. She marries a Jew named Salmon and has a child named Boaz. Boaz goes on to marry Ruth, who the book of Ruth is named after. That's clever. Well, Ruth is from Moab. She's not a blood-born Jew either. She's not a prostitute though, so let's get an amen for her. Now the Moabites though, which she was a Moabitess, the Moabites were the children of Lot and his incestuous daughter. Remember that story from our Old Testament overview? They get delivered from Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's wife gets turned to a pillar of salt because she looks back and they're hiding up in the mountains. It's Lot and his two daughters. They're like, there's no man here to lay with, so we need to get our dad drunk and lay with him. Which they do, they get pregnant. And one of the lines that comes out of that is the Moabites. And that's who, that's where Ruth comes from. So, this is pretty interesting. You're on Ancestry.com and you're researching your ancestry, right? Prostitute, prostitute, foreigner. Yeah. This is just messy. Well, Ruth and Boaz father Obed, who fathers Jesse, who is David's dad. And David is said to be the king. That David. King David. So things have straightened out now, right? We're going to have good kingly men now, right? A good kingly line. Well, David, the king, the one God established his covenant with, sees a woman bathing on her roof, commits adultery with her, has her husband killed, takes her as his wife, and then later has a son named Solomon by her. Hmm. So much for normal and nice. Good Upright kingly line, right? From Solomon, we see a line of kings, which we talked about. Some direct sons, some grandchildren or great-grandchildren from person to person until we come to the deportation of the Jews to Babylon. Now Matthew, speaking to this Jewish audience, would not call it an exile or a captivity. They wouldn't see it as that. That would be too painful. So he, he uses the word deportation, which literally means migration. So he soft-sells that. He's like, we migrated to Babylon. Yeah with hooks in your nose and ropes around your ankles. Again, remember, this was a punishment. This, this deportation was a punishment for their being unfaithful to the covenant laws that God had given them as the Jewish people. It was a national tragedy, but even during that exile, they expected God to come and deliver and save them. Now, after being in Babylon, we talked about this a second ago, we see this guy, Jeconiah. Now, this is, this is significant. He's mentioned as a king of Judah who ruled after the Babylonian captivity, a puppet king set up by Babylon. But there's a problem. Now, in Jeremiah 22.30, Thus says the Lord, Write this down, and he's talking about Jeconiah here, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed 
and sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Hmm. None of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So what does that mean? It means that no offspring of Jeconiah would ever sit on the throne of David and rule over God's people. But wait a second. Aren't we seeing Jesus as an offspring of Jeconiah since we see him here in the genealogy of Jesus? Well, yes, yes, we are. So then what? Did God forget? Oh, Jeconiah, I forgot about that. Did God change his mind? Is he making an exception since this is the Messiah? Well, he would do just the opposite. Since it's the Messiah, the stakes are higher, and he would not go against his word. So is Jesus not the king then? Well, we know from what Matthew has already said that Jesus is the king. He is the Messiah who will reign forever. Now check this out. If, you, if you're in Matthew 1 still, got your finger there, look down in verse 16 real quick. It says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So after tracing the line, we come ultimately to who? Joseph, the husband of Mary. So Joseph is the generation before Jesus the king, but the question is, was Jesus Joseph's offspring? Ha! No! So Jesus, not being Joseph's offspring, is not the offspring of Jeconiah, even though Jeconiah is in the line of Joseph. Now why is that important? John MacArthur explains it this way. If Jesus had been the real son of Joseph, he never could have sat on the throne of David. He would be under the curse, and yet he had to be the legal son of Joseph to have the right to be king. So God had to devise a plan by which he would be the legal heir to the throne, but that he would not be in the line of David descending through Jeconiah. And so God did it by the virgin birth, bypassing the actual bloodline of Jeconiah, and yet carrying the royal right to reign and descending the blood through the side of Mary. Mary is also a descendant of David, but not through the line of Jeconiah. End of quote. And to me, this is just extraordinary. God ends up giving Jesus the legal right to rule through Joseph's line. Legally. But he also gives the royal blood through Mary. And all the while honors the curse he placed on a man 600 years prior. So, huh? It's just coincidence, y'all. It just happened that way. Yeah. So after seeing some names we're familiar with after Jeconiah, we start in verse 13 with names that aren't anywhere in the Old Testament. Abiad. And at this point we're dealing in intertestamental times till we get to Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Now, no Jew reading this genealogy would or could argue that this Jesus who is being discussed in this list of names was not in the line that the Messiah would come from. They would not do it. They could not do it. It's airtight. They might not like it, but they can clearly see that the pedigree is there, which is what Matthew was trying to do with this genealogy. Now Luke's genealogy traces the genealogy through Mary, and he actually goes all the way up to Adam. goes back to Adam. So we just started with Abraham here because we're dealing with this Jewish audience, and they're worried about sons of Abraham. So, so then he throws in verse 17 too, not by accident. Nope, I've got Colossians 1.17, and I need Matthew. There it is. 
So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, what? What's this 14 generations thing? First of all, it's problematic for a couple of reasons. If you make a list of the names in this genealogy, how many do you think there are? 14 plus 14 plus 14 equals 42. Well, there's 41 names in the genealogy. So can you have 42 generations with only 41 people? No, you can't. And yeah, you can. I do that every week, don't I? Now there's a lot of reasons why and why not about why you can have 42 generations with 41 people. And you can find a hundred different explanations. Just search it on the internet. Better yet, don't. Don't search it on the internet because there's some crazy stuff out there, y'all. I mean, just crazy. But a couple of good explanations that made a lot of sense to me. First, Matthew counts the deportation in the list as a generation. From Abraham to David, 14 generations. From David to the deportation, 14 generations. And from the deportation to the Christ, 14 generations. So if you add the deportation to the 41 names, you get 42 generations. Okay. Also, he mentions David twice. Abraham to David, David to deportation, deportation to Christ. So, so you could say David twice makes 42. Why does this even matter? What's up with 14s and 42 and such? Now, okay, everybody just... I, I wrestled with this for hours. Not 14 hours or 42 hours, but I wrestled with this for hours. How do you address this? Now, I'm not a numerology guy, okay? I don't believe there's some secret hidden Bible code when you look into the numbers and stuff. But God does things on purpose. And there's a precision in what God does. And sometimes that precision is shown through numbers. Okay? So stay with me. There's a number that comes up a lot in the Bible. If you had to think of and associate a number with the Bible, what would you associate with it? Seven. Yeah, see, see, you know, it's seven. And seven is the number of completion, perfection. It's the perfect number. Three is the number of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinity. Four is the number of man, they say. So three plus four is seven, which is perfection. That's the way God designed it. Now, we're not going to go any further with that, okay? But stay with me. So seven comes up a lot. You didn't know you were going to have to do math this morning, did you? Stay with me. Okay? Do you see a connection with seven and 14 and 42? Okay? What's that called? Huh? Math. It's called math. It's called, I got to take my shoes off to do that math. No. So 7 times 2 is 14. 7 times 6 is 42. So you can divide these numbers by 7. Okay, so stay with me. <laughs> so remember we said that there are strong Old Testament connections in Matthew, right? How many days did God work in the creation account of Genesis? Six. And He rested on the seventh day. Now there's a lot of references in Daniel to weeks. And a week is made up of how many days? And some people say those weeks represent years. Daniel says in Daniel 9.24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, put it into sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So I've got a slide change error. 
Can you go to, did it freeze up? Do you know? Can we change it? No, it's not going to work. It's crashed. That's all right. Too many numbers. Too many numbers. We'd have messed it up with math, okay? So stay with me here. Okay, and again, I wrestle with this. What did God do on the seventh day of creation? He rested, okay? So what if these generations represent a period of six weeks of years? Okay? So you got 14, 14, 14, that's 42. 42 divided by 7 is 6. What if those six weeks represent a period of time leading up to a seventh week, which would lead to what? Rest. So after 42 generations, we start into the seventh week of generations. Are you with me? What if the arrival of the Christ, Jesus, was to usher in peace and rest, and that is shown as coming after six weeks of generations? Just think about it. And there are more ways that this 14 and 42 thing can work out, but we won't go any further unless y'all think I'm about to predict the date of Jesus' return using the Pythagorean theorem. Okay. Now, we don't think this way, okay? but the Jews did. The Jewish mind processed things like this all the time. Matthew knew that his audience was Jewish and he knew that they would process things this way. He knew that they would see significance in three sets of 14 generations and a perfect time and God having a perfect plan. And Matthew did it on purpose, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Matthew is sounding the trumpet, announcing the arrival of the king and his Jewish readers and hearers hear it and they hear it loud and clear like a blowing shofar. Here comes the king. They're like 14 and 14 and 14, 40. Wow. The Jews get it. And he is saying as plainly that he can that the Christ that he is writing about is Jesus. And Jesus was the son of Mary and her husband Joseph. No, the son of Mary who had a husband named Joseph. Joseph would have adopted him to legally make him his, but Joseph did not participate in the creation of the Christ. And the king is bringing his kingdom and his peace with him. And his story is a pretty doggone good one. And there's a lot of that story in these 28 chapters of Matthew's telling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I can't wait to get into it more, but for today, let's apply what we've seen. So how do you apply a list of names? Well, we did it in Ezra and Nehemiah, didn't we? Hmm? Surely we can do it here. Let's look at how this genealogy of the king affects us today. i got three points. They're all M's and they build on each other. Lest I be proud, let me just share them with you. The application points are me, mess, messiah. Me, mess, messiah. That's our application points this morning. How does this genealogy apply to us today? First, me. In this list of names, everybody fits in somewhere. These are names. These are people. In God's plan, listen to me, there are no wasted names. And that includes me. And you. And Abiud. And Joseph. And Jeconiah. Everybody that is in God's family has a part to play. 
As I read this list of names dating from Abraham and leading to David and a deportation and ultimately to Jesus Himself, I see the truth that God's grand plan, God's purpose for all eternity involves me. No, the Bible is not about me. And God is not so passionately consumed with me that He's made me the center of His plan. But He did include me in His plan. Me! I grew up in Helen, y'all. And God included me in His plan. From before the foundation of the world. When God was ordering history, His plan was for me to be with Him for eternity. When God chose those who would inhabit heaven with Him, He chose me. To say that He didn't have to is such an understatement that it really probably even shouldn't be said, but I just said it anyway. No, I don't deserve it. Which makes me about grace. The application of me in all of this is that God set His grace on me. And that moves me to worship Him. And I so want to see His plan for me in this life and the next. David, the king who was chosen by God to be the ancestor of the King of Kings, wrote this in Psalm 139, 13-18. Listen to this. I'm going to read it from the Net Bible, New English Translation, because I think that ESV actually gets this one wrong. It happens. Not wrong doctrinally, just a wrong translation. Listen, listen what this says. Psalm 139, 13 through 18. David writes, Certainly you made my heart and mind. You wove me together in my mother's womb. I will give you thanks because your deeds are awesome and amazing. You knew me thoroughly. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret and sewed together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was inside the womb. All the days ordained for me were recorded in your scroll before one of them came into existence. How difficult it is for me to fathom your thoughts about me, O God. How vast is their sum total if I tried to count them? They would outnumber the grains of sand. Even if I finished counting them, I would still have to contend with you. Now did you catch that? Verses 17 and 18 again. How difficult it is for me to fathom your thoughts about me, O God. How vast is their sum total? If I tried to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. Now can you just stop and think about that for a second? God thinks about me. And not just in passing. No, Jason. How vast is the sum total of His thoughts about me? He loves to lavish His grace on me. He loves to think about me. And if you are His child, the same is true of you. He made you in the womb. He knit you together. He ordained your days. He recorded them in a scroll before one was in existence. And He set His thoughts on you and me. And while He holds all things together and works His perfect plan to perfect completion, He thinks about me and you. If you're His child.
Oh, church, worship Him for His thoughts about and His perfect love and His perfect plan for you. So that's me, now mess. Those are kind of synonymous, by the way, me and mess. Can you believe the mess of people in this genealogy? We talked about the prostitutes and the foreigners and the underhanded dealing a little, but really, can you see the mess of humanity that made up the bloodline of Jesus who was God in the flesh? First and foremost, they were all of them sinners with sin in their DNA thanks to our first father Adam. And contrary to Roman Catholic teaching, Mary was a sinner. And she found favor. She found grace in the sight of God. Not because of anything she did, but because of who God is. Mary was not sinless or perfect. She was a sinner who was given extraordinary grace to carry and deliver the Christ. You know what? Me too. I'm a sinner who was chosen to carry the Christ as I go. And all of these folks, chosen Abraham, blessed David, cursed Jeconiah, all of them were swimming in sin. And God, in His power and love, used the sins of some, the obedience of some, and wove together a messy tapestry that brought about the one perfect human being who would live a perfect life and die to save us all. So what's the application for us? Look at your life. Maybe you think you're too far gone or that God is ashamed of or done with you. You've just made too big of a mess of it to which God says, Ha! Have you read this genealogy? That's a mess. And what did He do out of this mess? He brought forth the Christ, the anointed one, the promised one who would die for you. You've made too big of a mess. The good news of the gospel is that there isn't a mess so bad that God can't work miracles in and through it. Romans 5, 20 and 21 says this, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now did you catch that? Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Let me ask you a question, an honest, serious question. Do you think your sin is greater or worse than God's grace is good? You may be the worst, you may be in the worst imaginable mess possible. And it may even be your fault. It may not be. But listen, God is able to make something beautiful out of you and your mess. The application is to see His ability to do it and to line yourself up through confession and repentance to obey Him and follow Him on His path. He will not bless your sin if you continue in it without turning. He will let you go your own way if you do that, which is the worst possible punishment He could give you. But if you turn to His way, His plan, He will... Now did you hear me say that? He will make something beautiful and honoring out of your mess. Some of the folks in the line of Christ never repented, but God worked His plan anyway. God will have His glory. Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. 
God will have His glory. God's plan will come to fruition. I've read the end of the book. The question is, will your mess be redeemed or will you wallow in it with no hope? So, lastly, where do we find hope in all of this mess? Turn to ourselves? No. Look at our mess? No. We turn to the Messiah. This Jesus, whose ancestry we saw today, is God's Messiah. That's the point of verses 1 through 17. That's the whole point. Jesus is the Messiah. That means that Jesus, Jesus, born of Mary and descendant of Abraham and David, is the one that God anointed and appointed to do His will and carry out His plan of redemption for God's people. This was clear very early on after Jesus had died and was resurrected and had ascended into heaven. In the book of Acts, we see the truth of Jesus' Messiahship proclaimed as the foundation of the Christian faith. Peter says in his first sermon in Acts 2, after the Holy Spirit was poured out, he says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. He's referencing a a psalm that he brought up. And he's saying this is not about David, it's about Jesus. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Short time later, after being arrested for proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, Peter says this to the Jewish leaders in Acts 5, 30-32, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. So from the very foundation of the Christian church, They are proclaiming Jesus as the Christ to Jews and to Gentiles. So what does that mean for me and you? It means that our faith has to be placed in the person of Jesus Christ if we are to be saved and if we are to live as those who are saved. Peter, again in the book of Acts, says this in Acts 4, 6-12. And when they had set Him in the midst... They inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Peter just healed a man. He spoke to a man who was crippled. The guy got up and walked. Everybody's like, whoa. So now the leaders are saying, how did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Himself said, I am the way, 
I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one path to God and it is the man, Christ Jesus. No other way. I don't care what these freaks out here tell you that we're all going to make it to the top of the mountain and we're all going to get to heaven and there's many paths up there. There is one! And it is the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the way to the Father. There is no other way. He is the Messiah. He was not a good man. He was not a good teacher. He was God in the flesh. He was God's appointed and anointed Messiah. And only faith in Him and His perfect life, His substitutionary death, His resurrection, and His ascended ministry of intercession at the right hand of God, only these things can save us. Only He can save us. Yes, He loves me. And yes, He can redeem my mess. But only if I put my faith in Him and His amazing love and grace. Jesus is God's Messiah. Jesus is my Deliverer and Savior. And Jesus will be the world's judge one day. Run to Him now in faith and repentance and know Him as your Messiah. Let's pray. God, You do not waste a name. You do not waste a molecule. Your plan is perfect. And your plan was perfectly realized in the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and glorification of Jesus the Christ. I pray that we would know what it means to place our faith in Him and His work and to cease our deadly striving and to stand still and see your salvation as presented through Him. See Him in the new Jerusalem. Praise the One who saves us. We give you honor and glory in His name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Stay and eat with us if you can.